0: We're going to look today at Acts chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 25, and uh, these two men that were part of that seven that were chosen by the apostles uh, to serve uh, the people, the community, so that the apostles could give more time uh, to really leading this new movement. Two of the men that were, were picked was Stephen and Philip. And what they looked for were people within the community that were full of wisdom and full of the Spirit, uh, really full of power. And what's fascinating is that they were chosen to serve, uh, to serve the widows, to serve the, the vulnerable, to serve the hurting and, and the broken. Uh, and they ended up going even beyond that because God empowered them. Remember what I said about the Holy Spirit? He's sovereign and he can gift us as he sees fit. Uh, And the Spirit empowered these two men, uh, Stephen and Philip, uh, in ways that went beyond just that simple service. And I believe the faithfulness in the little things actually led to a usefulness in, in larger things. And so their ability to communicate the gospel, to articulate, to preach the word, and also that signs and wonders, the ability to cast out demons, to bring healings, Uh, And this is what we're going to be seeing today. And I want to just remind you of one of the key themes in the book of Acts, as found from the very lips of Jesus himself in chapter one, uh, verse eight, when it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. I want to believe that they were trying to ignore Jesus on that statement because the Jews were not fond of Samaritans. Uh, But notice Jesus is saying this movement was never meant to just stay in Jerusalem. It wasn't a movement for the Jews only, but there is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek. All are one in Christ. And so the gospel, I chose you that through you I can reach all. This is the purpose of the gospel. I love this. And to the ends of the earth when the key concepts in the book of Acts is the continuing work of Jesus through his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. And a concept that is spoken of in these very verses is that concept of power. The Greek word that is used for power is where we get the English word dynamite. And that speaks of something tangible. It doesn't speak of something that's that's esoteric, It doesn't speak of something that's ambiguous. It speaks of something that is meant to be experienced tangibly and practically. In fact, every single time you see the Holy Spirit engagement in the book of Acts, when Luke records the movement of the Spirit, the falling of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, the instruction of the Spirit, the guidance of the Spirit, the empowerment of the Spirit, something always happens. And people around those who are followers of Jesus know it. When the church prayed, they felt the presence of God and the place shook. When people went out and communicated the gospel, Stephen's face was like the face of an angel. And there was power in what was spoken. And people were getting converted and they saw in these Christians something that other people did not have. And I want to put, put that question into our minds Is our experience of the gospel actually transformative? And is it something that is tangible? Because I think that we have become afraid to even entertain those questions. And because we've become afraid to entertain those questions, I think that we often escape from the nagging sense that we are not experiencing all that God would have for us. Numbing ourselves with the various things that our culture offers us to escape the the difficulties of living. When Jesus wants to give us not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 8, the setup for the story we're going to look at today begins here with the power of the gospel and its ability to endure even the world's attempts to snuff it out. In fact, God utilizes the enemy's attacks upon the church to bring about a greater expansion of that church. It is always under persecution that the church actually tends to explode. I think it's important for us to remember that. Acts uh, Acts chapter eight, verses one through three. Here we see the scattering of the church and here we see uh, the power of the gospel uh, to move forward in spite of persecution. And Saul approved of his execution. This is Saul of Tarsus who will become the main player in the remainder remainder of the book of Acts. Uh, He becomes Paul the apostle who wrote most of the New Testament, uh, and here he is an enemy of the church. And God utilizes Paul, when he was still Saul, as the one who attacks the church. He utilizes him to cause the church to expand. And then afterwards, he utilizes him by converting him to the gospel to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. It's fascinating when you see God's providence at work. It says, And Saul approved of his execution, that is, Stephen's execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women, and committed them to prison. So here we see that through this attack upon the church, the church is scattered. But as they are scattered, notice what they're doing. As they are scattered, we are told that they are now those who are scattered in verse 4, went about preaching the word. And now we see the power of the gospel to endure persecution, but actually the power of the gospel proclaimed. And I love this. As they were scattered, it would be like, I, I was trying to think of a good example. It's kind of like this preach and flee sort of concept. I kind of like this idea. Like you're in Hawthorne, you just run into Powell's and you'll be like, thus saith the Lord, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. He loves you. And then just bolt, just get out of there. And I, I want to push that kind of evangelism in our church. I'd like Dora of to be known for like, hey, there's this movement. These people, like they're running into businesses and restaurants, telling people that Jesus loves them, and then running, just running. Like, Trust the Holy Spirit to save. You're just called to be witnesses. You don't even have to stick around. Uh, but the idea is this. It is actually what's happening. As they're actually fleeing for their lives, it still does not stop them from proclaiming the very gospel that they're having to that they're having to escape these persecutors from, they're like, nothing can stop us from talking about Jesus. Uh, And I think that this is a powerful thing. This is something that is tangible about power, the power of the Holy Spirit, is that when we are truly spirit-filled, nothing can stop us from talking about Jesus. When we're truly spirit-filled, God removes the, the fear and replaces it with the with power and love and self-control. And I think it is so profound and it's so convicting because I think that we aren't under any big threat and yet we're deathly afraid of proclaiming the gospel. We don't every day you scatter throughout the city. And the question is is, is are you a conduit by which the power of Christ is able to flow through? And I've just been struck by this, and I want you to hear me clearly today that I think one of the great issues that we are facing is that instead of relying on the power of the Spirit, instead of being filled with the Spirit, we fill ourselves with all sorts of things to numb ourselves from the pain of existence. Rather than actually being filled with the Spirit so that we can bring life to those who are in pain, we just join forces. And, we're the, and, and Christians who do that are the most pathetic of people because we become most miserable because we know the truth, but we don't know it enough to be freed by it. And I don't think that that's what God wants for us. Look what happens. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now I think it's important to stop here and talk about the significance of reaching Samaria with the gospel. Do you remember in John chapter four, Jesus spoke to a Samaritan woman at the well and actually it's the most profound teaching in the entire Bible on worship. Uh, He tells tells this Samaritan woman who's been married multiple times and is now living with a man uh, and she's basically asking the fundamental question that all people are asking, where can I find God? And Jesus begins to open up for her. He says, if you knew who was, who was asking you for a drink of water, uh, you would ask and he would give you water where you'll never thirst again. And she says, Lord, how can I get this water? Thinking he's talking about literal water, not knowing he's talking about spiritual life. And he goes on to unveil to her the fact that he is the Messiah and that God is looking for true worshipers who will worship in spirit and truth. It's not going to be confined by a building anymore, but that God is doing a new thing through the Messiah, through Jesus, and i love it the samaritan woman comes to faith in jesus and she goes back to the samaritan village and she says come hear from this man who has told me everything there is to know about myself and they and and she brings the village back and the villagers hear jesus and, and him proclaim the gospel and they say now we believe not because you said but because we have heard from him ourselves and so already in samaria there has been this beginning movement of jesus of the gospel uh, but Philip comes in, and you have to keep in mind hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans had literally lasted a thousand years. A thousand years. It actually began with the breakup of the monarchy uh, in the 10th century BC, when ten tribes, ten of the twelve tribes of Israel, defected, making Samaria their capital, and only two tribes remained loyal to Jerusalem. And it became steadily worse when this, when Samaria was captured by Assyria in 722 BC. And thousands of its inhabitants were deported and the country was repopulated with foreigners. And so what you have with with the Samaritans is they were despised by the Jews because they were viewed as hybrids in both race, but also in religion. Because in the fourth century BC, the Samaritan schism actually became worse uh, with the building of a rival temple on Mount Gerizim. And it's one of the things that the woman at the well says to Jesus, our fathers say that it is here where we're supposed to worship. And your fathers say that it's in Jerusalem. And that's when Jesus gives her this new profound look at a covenantal worship. It's neither in Jerusalem nor here. But true worship will happen in spirit and in truth. Uh, and I think that this is a profound thing because they rejected the Samaritans. Not only were they hated because they were, uh, they were hybrids of race, but religion-wise, they had a temple that wasn't in Jerusalem. Uh, and they rejected almost the entire uh, Old Testament, with the exception of the Torah. And so these people were considered about as unclean as you can get by the Jewish population. And so when Jesus says, You will preach the gospel uh, to the ends of the world, I, I would, there would be a natural reflex amongst those Jewish apostles to almost have their ears plugged when he, said, when he mentions Samaria, Samaria in, in passing. Because remember, when the, when the disciples came back while Jesus was talking and found him talking with a woman, they were horrified by it. This is why Jesus even tells the story of the Good Samaritan, because it's such an offensive concept to Jews to even be engaged with the Samaritans. And so here you have the gospel going forth, showing once again that the purpose, God's purpose was always beyond. It wasn't, I didn't choose a people, Israel, um, and reject the rest of the world. That's how Israel treated their election. God told Israel that he desired for them to be a nation of priests. They became a nation with priests. They became cloistered and turned inward and they lost the ability to fulfill God's plan, which is I chose you that through you, I can bless everyone. And what does he do? Through Jesus, Jesus comes and fulfills the promises he makes to Israel he becomes the truly chosen one. And through him, we see now the gospel is never intended to just stick around in Jerusalem. And through the persecution of the church, God uses that persecution to cause scattering. And the scattering causes, it doesn't cause them to lose their faith. It actually causes them to share their faith as they run. And that creates expansion. Beautiful. It's so powerful. Once again, we see the power of the gospel, the work of Jesus being accomplished through the church empowered by the Holy Spirit. Something tangible is different. And look what happens in verses six through eight. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed so that there was much joy in that city. I think it's important to note that Stephen and Philip were not apostles uh and scripture uh as as john stott said does not warrant a rigid restriction of a mir- of miracles to the apostles uh and and i think that this when they hear the message of philip and they see the signs uh and the close attention that people are, are paying to it they they believe and and here's the thing that i think is important for us to see once again the power of the gospel the holy spirit is being manifested through philip pointing people to Jesus, delivering people from spiritual oppression. And I think that this is important for us to understand. We need the spirit to actually fulfill God's mission in this city. Do you think that Portland is any different than Samaria? When we read these stories of people being delivered from demonic realities, it's funny, we become kind of skeptical. We're so nuanced and modern in our sensibilities. And we like to, we like to try to pretend that uh, uh, that... Those kinds of things are sort of foolish and just maybe part of the story, but I want to just remind you, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and died for you on the cross, you already believe foolishness for, the, for most of the world. So if you can believe that, you can believe that what is the primary thing that Jesus came to do, which is to set us free from bondage, and part of that bondage is spiritual in its nature, that we need spiritual power to overcome the powers of darkness, And I love what we see here as Philip is bringing the gospel to a people that were oppressed demonically. They were oppressed by a culture. Uh, They had false views about God. And the gospel is being preached and they are receiving it with joy. And there is healing and there is deliverance. And there there is salvation. For the greatest miracles, guys, always is the salvation of the lost soul. And I love what happens so here you have the gospel going forth with power and people are being transformed. There's joy in the city. I love that line. Great joy in the city. And here's my, one of my favorite things. I don't know why, but I always get a kick out of getting to talk about wizards. Uh, in verse nine, but there was a man named Simon, Simon the sorcerer, uh, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. I want you to take note of that word amaze. It's going to be used multiple times. Um, and amazement is not necessarily a good thing. Amazement is mob mentality. It's being drawn into the sensational. It's being sucked into the spectacular. It, it, amazement does not necessarily bring transformation. Amazement is a, is a mob attitude. It's being wrapped up with the crowds. I'm caught up in the, in the show. Uh, and I, I love this. It says, uh, saying that he himself was somebody great they all paid attention to him that 's the very word that they just used for Philip with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did uh, and so look what it says here uh, this man they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, "This man is the power of God that is called great so they actually it 's a very strange sentence, uh, but essentially what what it, what Luke is saying is that this man was viewed as having some sort of connection with divine power, possibly even being worshiped as divinity himself. And there's a lot of um, mythology around Simon the Magus, uh, the magician. Uh, He's talked about actually by many of the patristic fathers, but it was so far after he had actually lived that uh, probably much of it is mythology. Uh, But what we do know is that he was practicing witchcraft. He was messing around. With spiritual realities, he ought not to. When it says that he was practicing magic, I don't believe it was talking about sleight of hand. Uh, I don't think that he was like uh, what's that guy's name, David, David Blaine. Yeah, that's the other guy, Copperfield. Copperfield. Yeah, he was awesome. Didn't he make the like the World Trade Center disappear? No, the Statue of Liberty. It's amazing. Uh, so I yeah, he's not Houdini. This guy is this guy's messing around with spiritual realities. And because of that, people were amazed and drawn into the sensation. But look at this. It says, but when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, notice Philip is giving them content. He's not just performing signs and wonders. All of that is to attest to the gospel, which brings transformation of life. It says that as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women, so fully identified, immersed into the death of Christ and resurrected in the newness of his life. And it says that even Simon himself believed and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. There it is again. I think it's important for us to understand that Philip here is not able at this point to tell that Simon is not a legitimate convert. They have believed and they have been identified with Jesus and baptized, but it takes life in the community for the, for the validity of that spiritual life to come to come into clarity. And I think it's important for us to understand that. We're going to see that Simon actually reveals the, the truth of what's going on in his heart. And here I want to just say, when Simon believed, it's different than what we see in those who receive the Holy Spirit. Simon's belief, and I always like to give this distinction of faith. There are two kinds of faith. If I say I have faith, uh, if I say I have faith in Bigfoot, what am I saying? I'm saying that I believe that he exists. But what does that actually accomplish for me? Nothing. That's all I'm saying is I just say he exists. But if I say I have faith in aspirin, what am I saying? I'm not saying that I believe aspirin exists. I'm saying that I believe that if I have a headache and I take aspirin, it actually does something. It gets rid of the headache. And so faith from a, from a scriptural perspective, saving faith is faith that acts. It's a dependence upon the, faith is a, is a disposition toward an object that allows the object to do something for you. It's never what you can do for the object. So it's not, I believe that it exists, but I believe that it actually can do something for me. And so faith in the chair that you're sitting in is belief, what are you doing for the chair? Nothing other than allowing it to do what it's created to do, which is hold you up. Unless you were at the Northeast building, where there's a very good possibility on given Sunday that you would fall through the old chairs that we had. Uh, and, so, and faith is only as good as the object in which you place your faith. And so I think it's important to see that Simon is like the demons. The demons believe. They were the first ones to identify the true, the true identity of Jesus. They call him the Son of God. They aren't saved. Their faith. Was, uh, was that of Simon. It's a belief. Uh, it's, a, it's an intellectual ascent, but it is not a transformative experience. And I think that we need a faith of uh, a leap of action, faith that actually moves our lives toward a greater reality. Um, and so look what happens here. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God They sent to them Peter and John. So two of the apostles go from Jerusalem to Samaria um, and who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And this is a really fascinating verse and it's a mysterious verse. And I want to speak to it for just a moment. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. I want to say that out of the gate, I was talking with Gary Bashir about, about this particular passage, and he said, he, I said, What do you think is going on there? And he's like, I don't know. Because this is the only time that this actually happens. Uh, and what, it, what happens here, which is not usual, is that there seems to be, and there's lots, believing, there's multiple interpretations on what's happening here. Some have interpreted this as that, that their initial belief in the gospel and their baptism actually was not legitimate conversions. It was just intellectual assent. And it wasn't until the apostles came and there's, there's a few people that hold that. But the text, Luke doesn't really paint it in that light. He doesn't give us room really to believe that their conversions weren't legitimate with the exception of Simon because he goes on to explain why Simon's wasn't legitimate. Uh, but here we see this strange delay. And here's the problem with Acts. When, Acts, when texts are utilized, picked out of a, a whole story, and utilized to create doctrinal grids, uh, we can end up with big problems. And this particular passage is often leaned into by hyper-Pentecostal movements uh, to speak of this kind of twofold conversion. The idea that you're saved, and that's one level, but that there's actually a higher level to get to, and that's the baptism of the Spirit. Uh, and so, there's, so it creates this fundamental problem within the church where there is within Christianity, within, within the realm. That, so if we held to that view, there would be within this room the haves and the have-nots. Um, oh, you, you haven't been baptized. In, and, and the belief is that immediately that it always is followed by the gift of tongues. Uh, and so it creates, uh, it creates something extremely problematic because they, they think of the baptism of the Spirit as a second blessing. Now, believe me, I am absolutely for and believe totally that the Spirit's filling can come in waves of intensity and, and function at different times and meet us in spots where there's empowerment to preach. And the gospel and the power, you can just sense the Spirit of God giving you unction, giving you the, the tongue of fire to communicate the truth of the Spirit. I always pray for it every week. I pray that it, that it shows up. And it's a real bummer when it doesn't. Uh, and, and, it, and, it, and then there's the, those moments where it's just like incredible, that, where the Spirit just, you're overwhelmed, like what happened to me in London, with just this momentary sense of God's absolute love for me. This kind of washing of the Spirit where there's a tangible... But remember what I said in the beginning. Everywhere in Acts where the Holy Spirit comes, it's actually experiential. It's not ambiguous. It's not like, I think he came. It's like he showed up. And not only is the person who's receiving the Spirit knowing it, but those around them are seeing it. I think it's important for us to understand that. But the, and so I believe that there are, there are times where we can be filled and experience after a conversion greater levels of intimacy with Christ. And I think that we have as much of Christ as we choose to have. And like I said, I think often our intimacy with Christ and in the, in the awareness of his presence and the ability to be empowered is often due to the fact that we give ourselves and are filled with so many things other than Jesus, other than the scriptures, other than the spirit, where the spirit is pushed aside and compartmentalized and grieved. Um, because we don't give him space. Uh, people who experience Jesus are people who make time for Jesus. That's just a fact. Uh, and so here's, here's this reality, though. There's a delay. And, and I'm going to give you I, what I think is the best speculation about it, the thing that I think makes the most sense in the context of the, the story of Acts, because Acts is not a doctrinal letter. It's a history. And Luke often doesn't give us answers. He just states what he saw, He's trying to be a faithful witness. And here we have a delay in the coming of the Spirit. Because remember what it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. First of all, you don't need someone to lay their hands on you to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into your life when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. But I love laying hands on people and praying for them to receive a a fullness of the Spirit. I think it's biblical, but I don't think it's necessary just as I don't think it's necessary to be baptized, to be regenerated. But I think you should be baptized because it's the first step of obedience. And so I think what we need to understand is that, that when we turn this into a doctrinal thing, like you get saved and then you wait until there's some sort of... Apo- and, uh, Catholicism actually uses this text too as kind of uh, apostolic succession. And I think that that's problematic as well the passage just simply doesn't give us that information. What I believe is going on is that this, remember, the Samaritans were absolutely hated by the Jews. And arguably, they were probably still looked at unfavorably by the Christian Jews as well. One of the things that needed to happen, I believe, is that the apostles still had the authority. Uh, The scriptures had not yet been, been written. Uh, and maybe some of them had started to be written, but here we have a reality where the the apostles come to validate the expansion of the church, and it is through the apostles' presence there that, that the validation is given to the conversion of Samaria. That's what I believe is going on and makes the most sense. So I think this is a unique experience in the church's history, and once again, I want to point out that the Spirit is sovereign and can do what He wants. So I think that's also important. But I think in line with the rest of scriptures, what we see, the doctrine around the Holy Spirit is that the baptism of the Spirit is not the same as the filling of the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit is something we are commanded to be each and every day as we surrender to Christ. The baptism of the Spirit is immersion into the family of God. And I think that that's a very different thing. So, whether they had the Spirit, and all all I can say is it's possible that they they said the Spirit had not yet fallen on them uh, I do. I am reminded of one unique verse where Jesus says uh, in the upper room discourse. This just came to me uh, when He says, uh, "The Spirit of Truth, uh, the Helper, uh, He is already with you, and He will be in you." There's also another point at the end of John, a really fascinating verse. I, I, I still to this day don't fully understand it. It says Jesus breathed on the apostles before Pentecost and said, receive the Holy Spirit. But they did not receive the baptism of the Spirit until Pentecost. So there's some kind of, the Spirit is with them. He's always there. But now there's this unique filling and manifest presence where the awareness of God's very presence within me as the temple of God becomes, becomes manifest. And that's what happens here. And they receive that Spirit. And look what happens. Okay, that's my my tangent on that. Why the delay? Don't turn it into a doctrine. That's my point. I could have just said that, but I thought you needed more explanation than that. Uh, All right. So here, this is fascinating. It says, now when Simon saw the spirit was given through the laying on of apostles' hands, he offered them money. So here he's showing his heart, saying, give me this power also. Notice what he doesn't ask for. What is he asking for? He's asking for power, I said this message is all about power, but power is not what we're asking for. What we're asking for is Jesus, and what comes with Jesus is power. (laughs) He doesn't want the giver. He wants the gift. That's problematic in Christian theology, and I promise you that just because Simon's a little wizard uh, doesn't mean that you don't also fall into the same trapping just as I have in my past. Give me also this power so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit he's drawn into the sensational. He's amazed. He sees the reality of God's hand upon these people. Something happened to them that was supernatural, and he wanted it. Do people see something about us supernatural and want it? See where I'm going with this. It's troublesome, really. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. J.B. Phillips, uh, the English translator, wrote translation of the New Testament in the 50s. Uh, he actually translated it as uh, 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 to hell with your silver is how he put it. And, and we, we laugh. It seems like, like he didn't mean it in his slang like cursing. He literally is playing off of the use of the word perish. Where else do we see that word perish? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not what? Perish. So what Peter is essentially saying, what Phillips is trying to pull out in the translation is that this path is hellbound. This path is destructive. You are, you are working from the wrong place. Your heart is not right. Literally, your heart is crooked. He says, may you still perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. It's crooked. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Peter's giving him an out. Repent. Change direction. Change mind about who's going to be God. See, he believed in Jesus intellectually, but he was not surrendered. And I think this is important. You know, I actually, I've thought a lot about this. I had a conversion in in 98 um, that was intellectual. I came to the realization I was struggling as a musician. I wanted to be famous. Um, I lost my record deal. I was deflated. My wife was unhappy with me, and I, and I started to seek. I, I felt that lostness. I felt that existential crisis. I felt the dread of existence. I felt the anxiety of the drugs, uh, and, and I began to look, and I opened up a Bible, and I began to read about it, and I was compelled by Jesus. I thought he was beautiful. I thought, this Jesus, I, this is, he, he seems legit. He's not like what people have said to me about him. He's different. And so I put my faith in Christ, right? But I came to Jesus not because I wanted Jesus. I came to Jesus because I wanted what I thought Jesus could give me, which was if I have Jesus on my side, I will for sure be on the cover of Rolling Stone within two years. Uh, And I remember, I'm like, Lord, I'm going to be. So for me, it was like I was trying to work out a deal with him. And we laugh at that because it's silly. And a year later, I remember listening to seven hours of sermons by Charles Price, great British preacher who was the dean of Cape and Ray. Uh, And he gave this seven hours of sermons on Romans 1 through 5 from from Cannon Beach Conference Center. And I listened to all seven hours one day while I was painting a house and was so blown away that the next day I listened to all seven hours again. And at the end of the the second day, the whole essence of the message is is that The Christian life does not, the saving life of Christ is not a reality until that faith is a dependence upon Christ where you allow Christ the right to be Lord and Savior over your life. And I realized I had not submitted one thing, that I was still very much my own God, and I fell on my face and I had a conversion, like brokenness, weeping, I'm not right before God, fear and trembling, a desire for freedom. And I experienced this massive liberation. I went home and I told Darcy, I repented to her for being a horrible hypocrite and saying that I'm following Jesus, but still following my own dreams and my own ambitions, my own hopes. I called my band, I quit cold turkey. I just quit the band, canceled all my shows that we had, showcases in LA that were pretty big. And I went to Russia instead and wrote my first worship song uh, on a mission trip. And, And the rest is history. The surrender brought about the power. The power came through the total surrender. And I think what we see here is that we can laugh like, well, I'm never, that sounds so silly that you want to be famous. Well, that was my thing. But how many people come to God for all sorts of things? It's not uncommon to come into church and treat Jesus like some sort of cosmic vending machine. It's not uncommon to think that if I get right with God, he's going to give me a spouse. If I get right with God, he's going to give me a child. If I get right with God, he's going to give me the job that I want. He's going to fulfill the dreams that I have. Because if I have Jesus on my side, we're like that Bob Dylan song, I, I, but we've got God on our side. As if that means that you're going to win. That the gospel is about winning. It's, it's, it's about losing everything so that we can gain everything. The good life comes through the good death. Simon didn't understand that. And he goes on, He says, For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity and nothing comes out of a desire to receive from Christ gifts without desiring Christ. The only thing that can come out of that is bitterness. The only thing that can come out of that is iniquity because Jesus will not be our homeboy. He will not be our cosmic Santa Claus. He's not interested in that. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Notice the abruptness of that story. No response. Luke doesn't give us any impression. Church tradition doesn't give us any impression that things went well for Simon. He was incapable of even... He's like, just pray. You pray for me uh, that that doesn't happen. There's no repentance in him. He doesn't recognize that he's chasing after the wrong thing. So... This is where I want to close, because I think that when I look at, when I look at Simon, I think that, A, I, I, don't, I used to listen to preachers that always made me feel like I wasn't saved, <laughs> and, and that's not my heart. But I do think that we are afraid to examine ourselves. We're not called to analyze ourselves. Analysis as well as death as well, said George MacDonald. Uh, but we are called to examine ourselves. In fact, listen to what Paul the Apostle says here in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 1 through 2. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Jesus said that there will be weeds growing up with the wheat. But the thing that I've come to realize as I have pastored for years and years and years is that... Weeds and wolves don't know that they're weeds and wolves, generally. It's a terrifying thing. And I think that, how do I know that I am truly born again? Is it something that should be ambiguous? Is faith something that should always be mixed with incredible doubt? Or should we, as Christians, have confidence that we belong to Jesus Christ, that we've been purchased at a price? And I would argue When I look at the Spirit-filled life in the book of Acts, when the Spirit comes as a gift, when it falls on people, when it's received, when there's baptism, that what I see is that the gift, every time the Holy Spirit comes, it is followed up by power. It's not followed up every time by tongues, but it is followed up by courage. It is followed up by boldness. It is followed up by at times healing in tongues and gifts and signs. What I'm saying is that every time the Spirit comes in the book of Acts, it is experiential and it is not only evident to those who have received it, it is evident to those around watching. And yet we have become so timid, so afraid to take that sort of step of faith, so uncomfortable with the idea uh, because we're not experiencing that and it creates a discomfort in us. And so the best thing to do is to pretend like that's not what happens anymore, but that is not the reality. That's not the gospel. The gospel comes to bring transformation to our lives. We're told that the Holy Spirit is pour, pours out the love of God into our hearts, the power to be obedient. Isn't that what it says in Acts 5.32? God gave the Holy Spirit to everyone who is obeying him. So obedience is a mark of his presence. I I like John Piper asked these questions. And and I thought it was really good in a sermon uh, around the issue of how do I know that I belong to Christ? How do I know that I'm spirit filled? He says, there is no promise in the book of Acts that everyone who receives the spirit will speak in tongues or prophesy, but there is the promise of power. And he says, you can say yes Can you say, yes, I have seen the spirit of obedience at work in my life, subduing sin and inclining me to acts of love. Yes, I have seen the spirit of praise in my life, filling my heart and mouth with worship to Jesus and God the Father. Yes, I have seen the spirit of courage at work in my life overcoming fear and giving me a will to risk things for the cause of Christ. And yes, even though I know that speaking in tongues and the gift of prophecy are no sure sign of God's grace, yet together with other evidences, they too are a precious evidence that the power of God is on me. Can we answer yes to any of those questions? And I believe that God does not want us to live in the dark. Faith is not is not living in the dark. It's stepping into the dark and finding ourselves on a firm foundation or a rock. The gospel brings transformation to the life, but are we yielded enough to allow the Spirit's power to become manifested? That's the question I have for you today.